Hello and welcome to section one, episode 16 of the LUFC Fan Zone podcast. I'm Sam Miles. And I'm Jack Ellis. And in each episode, we'll be talking to our next Legion United player or manager about their time at the club. All of our podcasts can be found on our LUFC Fan Zone YouTube channel, as well as Spotify and Apple Podcast. On our last episode, we created a montage of the best bits from the previous episodes of the show. We created a highlight from all episodes 1 to 14 and compiled them into one episode allowing you to re-listen to the highlights from the show so far. So far on our shows, we have released one full episode every two weeks. However, from now on, we have decided to start uploading every week, splitting the episode into two sections, which will release one week and then the following week, which will mean that you'll be able to hear something new every single week. Our previous episodes have included guests such as Division 1 title winner Lee Chapman, former record signing Olivier Decor, League 1 legends such as Patrick Casnobo and Casper Ankergren, and either former head coaches Neil Redfern and David Hockaday, all of who can be heard on our previous compilation episode. However, on today's show, we have someone slightly different. Today's guest never played for Leeds United or spent any time managing the side. However, he is someone who helped run the club from the very top. After helping Bahrainian banking group GFH Capital acquire a 100% stake in Leeds United in November 2012, leading negotiations to purchase a club from Ken Bates. He was appointed manager-director of Leeds in July 2013, replacing Sean Harvey, and helped run the club under GFH's tenure for 17 months. Although that period will be remembered by fans for the lack of success on the pitch, during his time at the club, he transformed Leeds United into becoming the first Stonewall Diversity Champions for LGBT rights in football something he pursued strongly after becoming the first openly gay managing director at any English football league club. That's right. Today, we're with former Leeds United managing director, David Haig. David, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thank you ever so much for joining us. And obviously, we plan on speaking to you about your time at Leeds and everything going on uh, with running the football club. But we'll move on to that in a bit. Uh, however, I think it's important if we start with what you're currently doing with your inclusivity programmes. Would you care to explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I came back from, from having a, a rather horrid 22 months in, in, in Dubai, um, you know, I was a, a lot of um, Brits that were um, having similar, had similar problems, lots of expats that were suffering injustice, they contacted me. So I ended up helping a lot of Brits. I mean, you all see the stories of, you know, X, Y, Z arrested in Dubai for having drink or this, that, and the other. Um, so, I, you know, I, I started to do an awful lot of that and, st- and still do. And that's what led me to to, to being um, contacted by the, the daughter of the ruler of Dubai, a lady called Princess Latifa, who tried to escape and was kidnapped and taken back. And everyone can see from the internet, she just Googled Princess Latifa, her story. But I also wanted to, to, to continue in, in, in grassroots football because, you know, whilst I didn't have any experience of football when I went into Leeds, when I, when I came out, you know, I had some good experience and some pretty horrific experience and you know growing up in Cornwall it, it, it's very much a rugby county so if you were if you liked football and you were a kid or you know you actually wanted to play football and you were talented you really had no hope down here and, you know the geography aside because obviously you I mean from from a, a geographical perspective if you need to improve your your standard of play as a kid you know what decent football club is is near you know Land's End. You you've got to go some way. So there was that aspect, but there was also the fact that it just really wasn't that popular. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do, and I was approached by Penzance um, Football Club, which is established in 1888, which is a you know a, a, a long history. Um, they approached me and said, you know, can you can you help us? 
they were about to be relegated down to a, a, another league. Um, and so I went along and I joined the board and ultimately became a deputy chairman there. And, you know, it was more about trying to bring in other people to football, make it more inclusive. Um, and I mean, you know, to, to give you an idea of that, I mean, I didn't even, you know, and I grew up down here, I didn't even know where the football ground was because, you know, I thought it was a rugby club and they've got their own football ground. And that's that's how, you know, football down in, in this part of the world really isn't the focus. And so one of the things I wanted to do was make it, you know, bring it to as many people as possible. And so people knew where Penzance was and help them as much as possible from, from a commercial side as well. Um, but as part of that, um, near where I live, there's a, another small football club called Mausol, um, which is literally a, kind of a few fields down, down from my house. And um, at the time, um, they recruited um, one of the ex-Leeds coaches, a guy called Jason Blunt. And he um, was working there, but also the the... the Mouse was part of like a bigger um, football academy program, which had a similar aim to improve, um, you know, the kind of the access to football um, for kids down here. Um, so um, they were trying to get, obviously, because he coached the, the ladies up up in um, when he was at Leeds. They were trying to get uh, a relationship going between these ladies and and the club. And ultimately, um, I um, were at the same at the time. This was when Massimo was still in charge um, and, and the Leeds ladies weren't really part of the club. Um, I was helping sponsor them um, because I was obviously as a former, one of their former chairmen, so I was helping them as much as I could. And I helped make it possible for them to come down to Cornwall. So they travelled down to Cornwall and play um, what was the Cornwall FA women's team. Um, so that was, it was bloody cold, I remember. <laughs> very, very cold. So I got involved in that and through that um, I was approached by the FA um, down here to join what's called their Inclusivity Advisory Group with specific responsibility for, for advising on LGTB issues. I always get that wrong, it's LGBT. <laughs> I always get that the wrong way around. Um, and, that, and a lot of the FAs around the country now, they have to quite rightly, um, you know, focus on and develop inclusivity so that football's available for, for everyone. And that's not just whether you're, you're gay or, or you're, you're a black player, you know, this is the disabilities, older people, all, all sorts of areas. You know, and I saw that that was something really, 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 really interesting to get involved in. Um, you know, obviously, well, know that I was the first, at least openly gay managing director of a football club and did quite a lot when I was there. So I got involved in that and, and was um, earlier in the year made, made chairman of that. Um, and so that's something that's really, really interesting, particularly down in Cornwall, because, again, it was so remote from a lot of the world that, you know, it's you don't have, you know, lots of kind of... Um, you know minorities in sport that you would in in, in you know city of Leeds, for instance. So um, you know there's a, there's a lot of education that needs to go on. Um, so I find it really really exciting. It's grassroots. It's it's it's, it's giving back and having a, a really positive impact. And you know through that as well, one of the things that I've seen, and obviously having been one of the people that brought in a foreign golf owner of a football club, albeit one that wasn't owned by the country, what we've seen. A lot of, and it's increasing. I mean, you only need to look at Derby County now and look at um, what's happening with Newcastle. You are seeing a lot of essentially, you know, tin pot cruel dictators in, in um, Gulf countries, but in also other countries, trying to use sport, whether it's buying the club or, um, you, know, you know, sponsoring it to kind of sports wash their human rights abuses. So that's something that behind the scenes as well, I've been kind of working on trying to at least highlight to the regulators you know, these people do X, Y, and Z horrific things of use human rights and should they be buying a football club? Are they a fit and proper owner? And obviously all that is 
quite different to what you did back in 2012 when you represented Bahrainian firm GFH Capital and led their negotiations to purchase Leeds United from Ken Bates. How did you first get involved with GFH and when did you realise that you were going to be attempting to purchase a stake in Leeds United? Yeah, I mean, one of the better phrase you could say I've moved from the dark side. Um, you know, not, you know, not that I'm suggesting that, that Salim Patel or Hisham are Darth Vader, but I mean, you know, I mean, I used to work for a top American law firm when I was in Dubai and I was approached by what was then a basically technology fund, um, investment fund manager, an Islamic one, that had nothing to do with GFH. GFH had a small ownership in it. I um, decided to go work for them. Um, and then a few months later, GFH took them over. Um, and you know, even at the time then when they took them over, I decided to leave that small um, um, uh, hedge manager because GFH had such a bad reputation in the market, in the region. And that's you know one of the reasons why they bought Lee's, which I'll, I'll probably come on to later. So... I kind of ended up in GFH by complete default um, and, um, yeah, ended up as the, the deputy CEO and, and in charge of legal. And because of that, I was heavily involved in, in things like investment decisions, etc. Um, and GFH, as, as, as I mentioned, they were suffering a lot of bad reputations. You know, they had articles in, in Reuters News saying, calling them a mirage in the desert, which when you're a bank being called a mirage in the desert really isn't you know, it really isn't very, very good for people. Would you put your money with Barclays if it was called a Mirage in London? You, you probably wouldn't. So they had, had seen a lot of other um, golf companies use the purchase or attempted purchase of iconic brands, you know, like, for instance, kind of like Bloomingdale's, Aston Martin, etc., to, again, kind of wash away um, the reputation of the bad things they'd done. And you know, they were looking at Leeds for that reason, um, as, as well as others. But one of the reasons was because they knew that, you know, putting in a bid for a football club, and they were looking at others as well. There was quite a few in Spain that was being looked at, um, you know, would would really, really cover all the pages and would help push things down Google. And, you know, it's something that they could bleat about. And at the end of the day, you know, they, I think at the time, had the misguided view that acquiring um, such a club at a very low, what was a very good price, um, would enable them to potentially sell it on to investors and, and, and make a profit. At the same time, obviously, they just assumed without really doing much research that you know people in the Gulf like football. They, lots of them are in football clubs already, so this, this should be easy to do and it will make us popular. Um, yeah, famous, famous last words. And like you said, a quick look at GFH's investment showed that at the time they'd invested money in private schools in the United Arab Emirates and some education bases in Bahrain where they were based. So why do you think they got involved with purchasing a football club in the first place? And what made them pick a club in England and more specifically Leeds United when they had other options in, like, in Spain, like you said? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was exactly that. It was to kind of sports wash their, you know, their, their, their bad reputation with investors. I mean, you know, they were, they were mostly a, a property investor. So the, the main um, kind of business before had been you know, for instance, getting a piece of land, um, proposing a development, bringing in investors. Um, and then obviously what happened is that, that the crash in 2008 happened and most of those towers and investments were never completed. So you had these half built, um, you know, skyscrapers all the way around the Middle East that GFH had started but hadn't finished because they hadn't got the money. So investors didn't want to put any more money with them. And if new investors came along and researched them, this is all they found. So, 
this was one of the ideas like like, like i said um they had zero experience in 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 sport zero and even at the time when when you know leeds was brought to them by a broker um who i think andrew umbers who ultimately i think for a little bit of time became a chairman didn't he under yeah so he was the one he's, he's a broker that brought leeds um to gfh and you know they they had zero experience zero and ken bates would have been the chairman at the time since 2005 and during his time at the club was seen as quite a controversial figure during his reign and Leeds had quite a few off-field problems as you would have fully well, fully well known which included two separate points deductions as a punishment for the club going into administration but what was he like to negotiate with especially as the negotiation period took a fair while? Yeah I mean you know that was one of the reasons ironically how I ended up being managing director I mean at the you know my role was the lawyer in the group and essentially I was sent to do the negotiations with Ken and, and often with Salim um, and you know I, I've seen you know a lot of being said about Ken he's got you know people that were for him and a lot of people that were against him as, as, as an owner you know I can only speak from my experience with Ken which was negotiating the deal with him the you know the first few months while he remained chairman and then you know the period when he was you know, removed and and and, and afterwards. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, my experience, all I saw from Ken's perspective, and it's one of the reasons why the negotiations took so long, because Ken was very keen to make sure as best as he could that GFH had the ability to take the club forward, was that Ken did have at that time, you know, the interests of, of, of Leeds at heart. He wanted to see it continue. He wanted to see it in the right hands. You know, and he did all he could to, to, to that I saw to, to assist in that. You know, even when I was at Leeds and you know I was um the director first and then managing director you know again I saw Ken often while he was chairman battle with GFH over silly things that they tried to do um for example I mean one of the famous ones is when they tried to ban alcohol you know when they tried to stop um, the ladies wearing short skirts you know they tried to bring in the kind of Islamization if you, if you like of of the the football club and you know Ken there's, there's some very funny moments I remember when when Ken made points by deliberately giving alcohol to Salim and things like that um in, you know in the, in the director's box to make a point um and you know you, we just all sat there trying not to smile <laughs> um but you know from my side and I know he's a very controversial figure but I I I've only ever seen him do things that were advantageous for Leeds now I, I know the history as well and and, and etc but you know I know particularly in my case you know that people have seen that you know obviously I, I get on with Ken um and, um, you know, I was at his last birthday party in Chelsea um, with a lot of people from Leeds as well. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, so that's my experience. I know it's going to be a controversial thing for people to say. And I remember once, you know, there was a picture of me when I was a managing director with Ken at one of the events, you know, and it got leaked out and I got so much abuse for it. But I think there's a lot that people don't know. Um, about what all well, obviously that goes on behind the scenes because you know fans are not going to know everything that goes on behind the scenes. And because of the deal dragging out for what was almost six months, was it ever a possibility that the takeover wouldn't happen? And especially if there were other interested parties, as reported. Yeah, all the time. I mean, essentially, what was the, the reason why it took so long is, is, as I said before, Ken was trying to make sure that whoever it was that was purchasing leads, you know had the money to take it forward and had the experience and if they didn't have the experience that they could find a way of buying in through consultants you know decent managers etc etc um 
And part of the problem, and, and you know, I've talked about this before, was that GFA didn't have the money. So they were delaying things because they didn't have the money. Um, and, you know, the, um, I remember very well when the um, first deposit was paid, so the contract was signed, the deposit was paid. The next payment, they didn't have the money for, so they defaulted on the next payment. The contract to purchase it was effectively breached. And, I'll, you know, it's, I've spoken about it before. I mean, we were, um, Salim and I had come into London um, from, or we were, but we were, in, we were coming to Leeds, sorry. And I remember me and Ken at the Malmaison upstairs, and Ken, Ken usually sometimes quite funny. And um, he came along with the shopping because the contract had breached. So he didn't have to sell. I think at that time they transferred about 25% from memory. And because GFH had breached the contract by not paying the next installment, Ken didn't have to sell the 75%. So effectively, GFH could have been left with 25%, which wasn't what they, they, they obviously wanted. So enabled Ken to come with a great shopping list of additional things that were required you know, for him to continue with the deal. And Ken had got, you know, these old kind of dot matrix printers where the paper attached to the paper. He came with a long list, lifted it like that, and it all dropped to the floor just for a bit of drama and to say, this is what I want. But, you know, that, that it, was, it, it took that long. Um, you know, there were lots of discussions and negotiations with Ken. That, that was the first thing. Um, so that, that took a while because obviously at the time, you know, we were all based, you know, I was based in Dubai, Bahrain is uh, Salim, and Ken was Monaco or Leeds. There's lots of flying backwards and forwards, um, but then you, you know it took it took it took a while um, with the due diligence and everything. But then you know quite a lot of the months, maybe even three of the months, was because GFH were delaying because they didn't have the money. And despite the huge delay, it was announced on the 21st of November that yourself and GFH had finally completed the 100% purchase of Leeds for a reported 52 million pounds. And although it was believed initially to fans that GFH did have some wealthy backers. Where did the fifty-two million pounds come from? Because, like you said, they were struggling for cash. And after you left Leeds, it was reported that money had been used from the Iranian government. Because at the time, the Iranian government were under sanctions, which prevented them from international trading. So, was that true? Yeah. So let me ad- address, um, you know, all of those. The first is the, the figure of fifty-two million. It, it's not. It's not correct. It's wildly more than, than um, the, the, the figure. I think. Um, there's other reports out there from memory, including some debt that was in. It was about 17. Um, that that was the amount. So that was um, from from memory. Um, it's obviously what eight years ago now, but that's what I imagine it was. Um, you know, in terms of investors in the background, there were you know there, there were people um, that, that were very wealthy that were in the background that had been spoken to you know prior to acquiring the club. But part of the problem, and this was one of the reasons why. Throughout their tenure, they failed to bring in investors, and why ultimately I tried with Sport Capital was because they 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 purchased it for let's say seventeen, but they wanted to sell it for too much, so um, or have investors in at a, a, a ridiculous amount. So it's very difficult to do that for them. So um, in in terms of Iran, um, I mean, effectively, let, let me say it like this: um, you know, in the in the um, kind of bank accounts of um, GFH at the time, there certainly GFH and Dubai. There certainly wasn't enough funds to make the payments. Now they had a big. Um, obviously, they're a wholesale Islamic bank, which means they can take deposits from people. They had an extremely large deposit from um, a Iranian, uh, the natural Iranian oil company, um, an extreme, you know, extremely large, kind of hundreds of millions. Um, and because of the sanctions that you mentioned, the the the, the um, sanctions against Iran. 
they were not able to give that money back to Iran. So you had this big uh, uh, amount of money just kind of sitting there. And it, you know, uh, I saw very clearly, um, that, that some of those funds had been used to plug a gap in the available funds at the time. They were put back, um, but money was taken out from that deposit. So the, the kind of long answer to your question, I mean, yes, I mean, if, if you're asking me from a legal perspective, was Iranian, you know, was money belonging to an Iranian company that was sanctioned with, with, with the UN? And I think it was in the Daily Mail, the article. Um, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that's completely true. And like you said, it was reported that it was £52 million, but you claim it was lower. But whatever the price was that was the initial, that which was the final payment, did you feel that it was a fair price for the club? Because at the time, both Ellen Road and Thorpe Arch weren't owned by the club. And the £52 million figure that was reported was £7 million more than what current chairman Andrea Radrazzani bought at the club for in 2017, when Leeds were inarguably a better position on the pitch with a better squad. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was seventeen, um, and and that included a few million of debt from memory, um, which was debt the club had that had to be paid off, um, and or around about that figure. And I think, you know, that was a I think you know I think at the time that was a good price, um, as can be seen by the fact that a couple of years later you look at how much Massimo paid, and a couple of years after that you, you look at the current owner. So I mean, I think you know they got a very good deal, which which was one of the great shames really because you, you know you had a, a very good deal they had the ability to buy you know the training ground and, and 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 you know for a ridiculous you know a ridiculously cheap sum because there was a, an option in place and it was just you know it's just a great shame that they would never put cash in that they, they they could do and i remember one of the arguments that i had um at, at the time is that um you know, at a similar time, you know, they could have bought, like I said, the, the, the training ground. But at that time, they decided to spend about twelve million pounds from memory on buying a block of flats in London to basically flip to a Saudi investor for for a million or two profit. Yet you had the, you, you know, you had Thorpe Arch sitting there, which was, you know, I, I was just, it was one of the things that you know, that this made me realise that that they really, really were not going to ever put any any money in because it was a no-brainer. I mean, it, it, you know, it was still a property. Thorpe Park was still property. It's something they really, really could have done um, and instead spent money on buying a, a block of flats in, in posh London. And when the takeover was completed, Leeds were sitting in 18th place in the championship at the time, which was far lower than what the fans expected and presumably the management would have liked as well. But what was GFH's primary aim for the club when you bought it? And like you touched on, it was clear that GFH didn't have the finances to run the club sustainably, and never mind to take the club to the next level. I mean, when I when I was involved, um, I mean, originally I was just meant to do the negotiations and then stand back, and then Sling was meant to do, you know, basically take over and look, look, look at things. Um, that that was the plan. And you know, at the time when I was involved, you know, I I was told that there were investors in the background. That's why they were doing it. You know, I, I realised later on that they weren't really that serious and it was kind of more for Hisham to be able to deceive the board to go ahead with it because obviously, you know, Hisham has bosses as well and they that, that, that's the board of the, the bank and they wouldn't have permitted the purchase of the club unless they genuinely believed there were people in the background that would come on board afterwards. You know, whether that be a takeover, whether that was just investments, that that's, you know, something that, that that was looked for. And I certainly believe at the time that that was the case. But as I mentioned, I mean, you know, as time went by, also, although I was also assured kind of sometimes the opposite, it became clear to me that there wasn't really anyone that serious. Um, or if there was, 
they've been put off by you know GFH wanting ridiculous amounts you know in, in, in turn. Um, yeah, so I, I mean it was obviously you know it was to develop the club to improve the the you know to obviously um, get as high as possible from the championship, improve the club, have a good manager and a good team, you know to to make it a good investment for them and or other people that they would bring in. So obviously that was as you know as, as bad as I think they are. Um, you know, they're not going to buy something to, to destroy it and lose, the, lose their investment. They're going to buy something to develop it. And that was their intention. It's just they didn't have the ability or experience to do that. And they weren't prepared to put in what was necessary. And for whatever reason, the investors they said they had didn't materialize. And then it became extremely difficult over the next you know, months that they owned the club to find investors that would invest alongside them because they were wanting, you know, returns of, of far too much and at the end of the day people knew how much was paid um you know and all investors want to to increase them increase their value essentially yeah and initially after helping gfh purchase the club you started as director at leeds however five months later you were announced as managing director of leeds united following the departure of sean harvey who took up the role at the football league did you ever envisage being managing director at leeds when GFH purchased the club, or did you have other personal aims and goals you were looking to work towards at the club? No, I mean I was never. You know, there was, for me, it was I, you know I was going to do negotiations um, with Ken, do the legal work, and and sit behind the scenes and do the legal work. I mean, you know, it wasn't even at one point. You know, I wasn't even thinking of being a director, um, and you know that was essentially my role to, to to do the legal work and monitor it, you know, externally, and then have the business side take over. But then what became clear is that. Um, you know, Ken was still the chairman at the time, and when we all became directors, Ken obviously still had the majority of the club because they were purchasing you know, in, in chunks. Um, the you know Salim in particular, but also Hisham, really didn't get on with Ken um, at all. Um, you know, and you know, two types of people from very different types of the world and with very very different beliefs. Um, you know, and from a business perspective it just wasn't working there was ridiculous fights and squabbles and arguments and things just weren't getting done you know you had i remember at one point you had the internal audit um from gfh come and wanted to do an audit committee that would literally count i mean at one point it got so ridiculous that that, you know there were questions as to why were so many paper clips being used you know so you you almost i mean ken joked about it as that you know they're going to install a paper clip counting committee but it, it became it became nuts so and and Ken was getting more and more difficult because he was just getting fed up with all the nonsense that they were trying to put in place. Um, so then um, you know Salah Noradine, who obviously later became chairman, points out to the chairman at the time that I actually get on with Ken and you know I'd managed to get the negotiations back on track. And why don't you send David there to kind of keep the peace? So I sent as a director. Kind of, the idea of me being a director was I was kind of like you know Kofi Annan from the UN just to kind of keep the peace between effectively the Arabs and Ken. Um, and, you know, then I just, you know, I got on with most of the staff. I got on with, um, Sean and Ken and, and all the senior staff there. Um, and when, um, Sean left, they were looking at external candidates, um, but at the time hadn't found anyone suitable. Um, later they brought in Paul Hunt, as you remember. Um, but they also preferred to have me kind of there most of the time. So they were looking at Salim or me, but it was decided to, to, to send David. Um, so, you know, it was completely by accident, really. And, you know, in a, in a way, because I kind of got on with Ken and Sean and the, the senior management. 
And prior to your role as managing director at Leeds, you haven't had any previous experience within a football club and neither did anyone at GFH. So how did you find it initially and how much football knowledge did you and the other people at GFH have prior to your time at Leeds? I mean, the, you know, there wasn't football, running a football club and running from like Leeds was zero. Um, you know, and you know, it was never the intention that, that I or, or anyone else would have been in that position. But I think obviously with Sean leaving um, and the club in the situation that it was. Uh, I mean, I was fortunate in a way because, you know, when I went as director, um, you know, I kind of learned, um, you know, I was thrown in the deep end and I was learning from Sean Harvey, as you know, who ultimately became, you know, the Football League and also Ken Bates, who spent a lifetime in football at all, all you know, various clubs. So, you know, and like I said, I got on with them. They were very helpful to me and, you know, guided me a lot and, and, and helped. And obviously I had managers like Neil Warnock and people. So learned very quickly. Um, but certainly, you know, at the time, like I said, no one had any experience. And, and whilst I tried to learn as much as I could from, from, you know, the, the, the Ken and everyone, like I just mentioned, um, GFH really weren't bothered about it. So you had these people sitting in Bahrain, um, smoking shisha, basically, and, and, you know, making ridiculous decisions based on no knowledge, based on just what their friend is saying next to them at the table while they're drinking coffee, that kind of thing. So it became complete and utter madness. And it was well reported that when Ken was the owner of Leeds, he took drastic message, he took drastic measures to reduce the costs at the club by reducing the wage bill and various other ways of making Leeds more sustainable. But when you arrived, was the club making a profit? Because that rarely happens with any side playing in the championship because of the lack of income from sponsorships and TV rights and things like that. Yeah, I mean, from memory, I mean, I'm, I'm sure someone will correct me because they're publicly available, but from memory, the accounts when the takeover was completed, so the last accounts kind of Ken did, there was a small small profit. I think it was a couple hundred thousand, but there was a small profit. So, you know, Ken ran very tight ship and... um and that was one of the, the weirdest things that I felt is that when, as soon as um, GFH took over, they wanted to reduce costs more. So, you know, you're taking over from Ken, who was, as, as you've just mentioned, well known for, 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 for looking at reducing costs. And they felt that they knew better. And despite Ken's decades in, in, in football, that they could actually reduce the costs even more. And things like paperclip savings, you know. And so that was one of the, the, the great concerns, I think. Um, but, um, you know, it was certainly profitable from from memory um but then it rapidly became you know in 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 the red and on the pitch there were just a few players at Leeds who had any real value at the club because most of the squad were coming to the latter stage of the career which can be partly blamed to Ken Bates for his unwillingness to spend on player transfers but also to Neil Warnock because that was the sort of squad that he liked to have but at the end of the first season at Leeds when the club had finished 13th in the championship Brian McDermott replaced Neil Warnock as the club's manager and understandably he would have wanted to bring in his own new players at the club to progress. And in that transfer window, both Luke Murphy and Scott Wotton arrived at Ellen Road for a reported combined fee of £2 million. So what was the funds like there for bringing in players and how did it work at the time? I mean, it was completely unplanned, no strategy, completely disorganised. Um, you know, you didn't have anyone like a director of football or anyone like that. I can't remember. I think Gwyn Williams by then had gone. Um, you know, there was no one in that kind of specific role that could give, you know, independent advice to the football club. Um, you know, in the, as, as well as a little independent from, from the manager, because sometimes managers want players for certain reasons and et cetera. So you had this ridiculous situation where 
you know, Brian obviously had his list of who he wanted. GFH, if I'm looking at Football Manager and God knows what else, had their list of what they wanted. Um, and there was kind of no one, no one with experience that could actually, you know, help drive that forward. And there, there wasn't a large budget. Um, and, and it was it's just a mess. Um, because you know, the, the problem that always dealing with GFH is, you know, Hisham would wake up with something in his mind one day and he'd be like, yes, you can have X million and you can do this. And the next day, you know, something would have happened. He'd have a tantrum and no, can't do anything at all. And it would be, and then the next day it would be different again. So there was no way that you could make any strategy. I mean, what I do know, which was, you know, really quite upsetting and, and Brian mentioned it quite a lot is that they made a lot of promises to get Brian to come. A lot of promises, promises of investment, promises of specific figures, promises of the way forward, which, you know, as, as investment bankers, you know, making promises about future, future returns is, is, is kind of their business. Um, and then, you know, and even, even from my side, you know, I, knowing them as I did then, I still believe that some of that would at least be done, but you know, very little, if any of that materialized. How did the recruitment work at the time? Because like we touched on before, GFH didn't have the millions to spend on players, but nor did Leeds have a director of football in place at the time who was who would have been there to suggest appropriate and affordable players for the squad. I, mean, I think that's the thing to, to look at. I mean, the, the recruitment didn't work. That's the, that's the easiest way to describe it. I mean, you look at, you know, whilst there were some decent players that were brought in, you know, there were an also, oh, you know, a lot of comical players almost. I mean, I won't name any names. Um, and, and some at ridiculous, ridiculous amounts because GFH didn't have any experience at all. So you could see how they were being kind of, you know, a lot of the time, you know, they would be sometimes, you know, contact, you know, kind of agents direct that, that circumvent the, the manager. There was no one there in charge. They think they're getting a good deal and there wouldn't be. And it was becoming ridiculous because, you know, you're supposed to have one point of contact, to have proper, proper, you know, corp, you know, proper negotiations. But it was just it was a complete mess. Um, and it was something that, you know, irritated me. It was some, something that was, you know, irritated the manager. I think around about, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, they also brought in Paul Hunt around about that time. And, you know, again, someone like Hisham or Salim Singh in Bahrain would be, you know, reading football stuff and they would buy themselves. And Salim would often do it on Twitter, sometimes even approach players direct on Twitter, sending them messages. I mean, you did that with a few players that I'm aware of. And... <laughs> What what you do, you know, and then you find out that about later, and it just it just made the you know proper management of the club and the recruitment process look like a complete and utter joke, and obviously that spreads around the football world very very quickly, and then you get people just trying to rip people off. So it was it was just a mess. And as well as financial in, and as well as financing the transfers coming in, how were the current players' wages paid? Because it was reported that although GFH had obviously full financial control of the club, they were asking other people, such as Ken Bates, the previous owner, to finance the wages because they simply didn't have enough money left. Yeah, I mean, there's, this, this boils down to the, 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 the kind of, so, you know, the, the, the investors that I mentioned at the beginning. So, you know, Hisham had obviously told his board and so his bosses that there were people in the background that were going to put money in that would, may well, you know, take over a large chunk of the club. Um, and that's on the basis that his bosses had said, OK, proceed with the investment and give him a budget. Um, and then as time went by, there were no investors, there were no investors and the club started to lose money. And obviously that meant that someone needed to pay the bills. So, you know, I imagine every month, you know, Hisham would have to go back to his bosses and say, you know, we need more money. And that was obviously putting him in a very embarrassing situation because I'm sure the board were coming back with the questions, well, where are the investors you told us about? 
And so the pressure was piling up because every month and from memory at one point, I think it was, and again, I'm, I'm sure people correct me when they look at the accounts, but it was, you know, I, I think at one point losing it, you know, an awful lot, it, you know, it was losing millions. Um, and someone kept on having to plug that hole. So, you know, there, there soon became very little money for, um, you know, decent players and, and, and a need to sell the, the few de decent players that there were. Um, to help balance the books but of course if you do either of those things you don't bring in good players or you sell the good ones that again doesn't make it an attractive investment to bring anyone else on um so they got themselves in a really really awkward situation um and at, and at one point i recall that um hisham had basically been told by the his, his bosses the board in bahrain that they wouldn't approve any more money and basically ken bates's wife um you know lent the club um from memory about a million quid one month to, to, to pay the bills you know i mean that that, that says it all you know it means you, you borrow money from a you, you know an ex-owner and from the wife of an ex-owner it got it got that bad and that for me again was that was another i mean you know particularly as we look later on what they did to ken and and, and how he was treated etc um you know after him effectively bailing out the club and can you remember like you said they were plugging the finances but can you remember what roughly the players wages were at that time that needed financing because today the wages are obviously an astronomical amount reportedly around nine hundred thousand pounds per week for the total squad which will probably which will obviously be far greater than that of 2012 so can you remember what sort of difference it was like what sort of money Joe, you know, i really don't um i really really don't um um, and I'm sure if I say a figure, I'll, someone will correct me, but I really don't. It certainly wasn't that much or, or anywhere near that. Um, but, you know, there, there were lots of other things that had to be paid because the club, had, you know, they had a lot of financing at the place. Money had been borrowed for X, Y, and Z, you know, whether it was because of the compass catering arrangement or things like that. So there were a lot of kind of debts that needed to be paid as well. But I honestly don't remember how much it was. And although there are a lot of negative aspects, which were clear to see when GFH were in control of Legion United, Surely one positive that stands out was that Leeds United becoming the first Stonewall Diversity Champion for LGBT rights in football back in 2013, which is something you feel extremely passionate about. What can you tell us about that project and how much support did you get from the other members of GFH? Because obviously they're all from Arabian backgrounds, which, which may mean that beliefs may not align with yours. Yeah, I mean, yeah, essentially, I mean, as I've probably just described in the last 10, 20 minutes, the complete and utter mess that was going on. Um, you know, wasn't wasn't positive. Um, but what I wanted to do, I thought, well, like, you know, I've got something of a platform, and you know, that gives me the ability to make improvements for 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 for, for those less fortunate or you know people that discriminate against. So I thought, well, right, well, you know, I wanted to make. I mean, you know, when in Ken's tenure, um, you know, the club had been, you know, somewhat a little bit isolated for various reasons. Um, and one of the things that I really wanted to do was put the club back at the heart of of um, you know leads again. So one of the things that I did, for instance, was allow the BBC to come back and we gave the commentary rights to the BBC. You know, it's the biggest broadcaster in, in, in the country. You know, and other press that had been banned, we, we brought them back. Like The Guardian, for instance, one of the things we did was, you know, we gave one of the first interviews to The Guardian, so we brought the BBC back. Um, you know, we went to meet the council, looked at ways that we could really bring, um, you know, leads back into the club. So, you know, we, we launched this, one of the um, initiatives was taken to the kids where we were trying to, you know, get football out into the schools around Leeds as well, more than it was. Um, and, you know, another way of bringing in more people was that, you know, I'd all seen that Leeds had a, you know, kind of dirty Leeds, bit of a bit of a reputation, et cetera. But what I saw was very different. You know, I saw very much, you know, kind of, you know, you know, the Leeds family, as it were. And, you know, one of the things that I saw was that, the you know, um, 
gay fans and, and um, were, were very much accepted. Um, and at the time, um, Robbie Rogers, who was an ex-Leeds player, who I think just left while I would just come in, um, gone to LA Galaxy and he'd come out. Uh, um, and, you know, I think um, somebody was writing his book at the time, but approached us and said, you know, asked me for information. I said, well, why doesn't he come over? So then we basically invited him over to launch one of his, um, his diversity charity called Beyond It over there. And at the same time, you, you know, we were, I reached out to, to Stonewall. Uh, and so we, the, the club became the first diversity champion um, for Stonewall. And I saw, I saw recently, it was either, I think it was Man United have just done it um, about a month ago. Um, and, it, you know, at the time that raised, you know, I was just thinking, well, hang on a minute. You know, sorry, it was Man City. It was Man City that did it. Um, because, or, or, um, you know, because they're owned by an Arabian country um, that criminalizes being gay. So I, I wanted to basically get, um, you, know, you know, make some improvements as much as I could whilst not having any real support from financially or in terms of knowledge of, of how to manage a football club. So that's something I did. And it was very, 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 very successful. Um, and I remember it very well because we had Stonewall banners around the, around the ground. Some players are gay get over it. There was Robbie Rogers there. Um, and the chairman at the time was Salah. He had come over and was, was giving out boards and things like that. And, and, um, you know, that did, however, put me in a little bit of a, um, awkward situation because, you know, obviously, as you, as you mentioned, um, um, the, the owners are from a part of the world which still has the death sentence for being gay. Um, and, you know, being gay really isn't condoned. But at the end of the day, you know, Leeds is a club in England. Um, you know, not in that part of the world. And it's, it's the same thing with alcohol when, when they were literally at one point thinking of banning alcohol, but also thinking of banning advertising from non-Islamic financial institutions. And of course, things like enterprise insurance were not Islamic, um, you know, and there was obviously betting and gambling and all the things that were effectively keeping the club going in terms of revenue, they were looking at banning. Um, so, you know, there, there were lots of clashes um, and, and problems um, because of their, you know, it's an Islamic bank at the end of the day. It's not just a normal bank. So they have to, um, you know, tick off the box on certain things. So, you know, it was, it was for me, not the wisest thing to do for my continued relationship with them. Um, they got very crossed. Um, and I remember at the time, um, they'd actually brought in someone that was looking at purchasing the club, a chap from Saudi. Um, and in the match day program was obviously big posters from Stonewall, some people could get over it. And I remember there was quite a lot of upset at that. Um, but it's something that I'm very proud of. Um, and um, something that caused me ridiculous amounts of problems with with GFH, and is possibly one of the one of the many reasons that they did what they did to me. Um, and why we're probably still well, you know we're still fighting years later, but, but I'll do it again any day because it's basically you know um, starting and continued a conversation about making football more inclusive for everybody, and it's something that um, was right, right to do then. And as, as I said recently, I, I do forget it's Man City or Man United have just done it about a month ago. Um, and it shows you it was ahead of its time because you know this was back in 2013. I remember. Yeah, and around that time in July 2013, Salah Nuruddin replaced Ken Bates as chairman of the football club. Someone who you've previously referred to as sensible Salah. Mm. How did that change affect the club? I mean, to be honest, um, I mean, and, and it really didn't. I mean, you know, Salah. Um, I referred to him as sensible Salah because every time, as I'd mentioned earlier tantrums i mean tantrums and tiaras from hisham all the time you know one day he would be fine and you'd be able to do things and the next you know at one point he wouldn't even talk to me for two weeks because i'd done something that he didn't like 
or I didn't answer the phone when he wanted me to. And so it literally was total tantrums all the time with British Ham. Um, and you didn't know where you were. Whereas, you know, Salah was a very, very different person. He was calm and sensible. And, you know, if we had a problem, it would be Salim and I would go to Salah to speak to Hisham. Um, and so it was, you know, it was um, useful from that perspective. But he didn't really make any decisions as chairman. It was more kind of just a, you know, title as opposed to actually somebody that was making decisions to drive the club, club forward. Um, but it was it was certainly um, good good to have him there for that period of time, if for no other reason that he could handle Hisham a little bit better than we could. And during your time at the club, you were often in attendance at Leeds matches, both home and away, something which not all GFH representatives did during that era. However, how often did Salah and Hisham attend and how important did you feel that it was for you to go to the matches and show your faces and show your face to the fans? I mean, I, I mean that's why I went, because I thought it was really, really important. And not just to, you know, sit up, up in the kind of the ivory tower of the Rex box, but to you know, to go down, um, you know, to the pitch, and we spent a lot of time doing that. And and also, one thing that I did as well was start to bring fans up to the director's box. You know, rather than you know, if we had availability, I we would pick people off Twitter or wherever it was and bring bring people up. Um, you know, I thought that was very important because at the end of the day, whatever you know, kind of, and it is business. You know, you need to be connected to the customers. You know, you need to understand what what they're you know what what they're thinking, what they want, etc. And so that's one of the reasons that I did it, and it. You know, made it more more inclusive. Um, Hisham was rarely there, if ever. I mean, probably you could count on one hand, maybe two times he went there. Um, Salah again, not there that often. Um, and and Salim um, was at the beginning, but towards the end, I think at one point he was actually banned from coming by Hisham because he'd upset that many people. <laughs> but um, so I mean, they weren't there that much. They didn't see the value or the importance of it. But but I did. And one of the games you did attend was an away trip to Sheffield Wednesday in January 2014, a match which Leeds lost 6-0. And it was reported that during that trip to Hillsborough, people at the club wanted to sack Brian McDermott at half-time in the changing room. What can you tell us about that story? God, that was that was, that was was hell. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember it very, very well. We were in, um, yeah, we were in, um, I remember being in the, in the, the, you know, in going inside into one of the, the, the director's rooms um and even before that i was getting you know non-stop whatsapp messages because Hisham was basically watching it with his friends in in some kind of majlis which is like a tent type thing smoking shisha drinking coffee and he was obviously he was obviously getting um you know teeth thrown by, by his friends um and um so yeah yeah he was basically taking it out and first of all we just thought oh it's a tantrum um which you know we get a lot of them um and <laughs> I remember at the same time my phone battery is running out, so it's it's not going very well. I've got someone um, getting very angry um, from Bahrain, um, and then you know when it got to half time and and the result was very bad, it was uni fine, um, and I, and you know I'm trying to advise caution and say well that's not really the right thing to do, you know for this reason that reason that reason apart from anything else we'll look like complete and utter idiots. No one does that. Um, we've got no one to replace him with, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You need to calm down. And then, you know, I carried on having those conversations with my battery literally trying to run out. So I'm trying to find a plug to charge it with. Um, and, the, you know, the last one of the last conversations I had with him, I mean, he was basically, well, if you don't do it, I will call the BBC myself now and tell them that we fired him. And then my phone ran out of battery and I was just like, bugger. 
Um, and I just, I, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you know, I remember at that time as well, Salah wasn't, I don't think Salah was around, but I remember trying to get hold of him and trying to, yeah, he was, I was contacting him all the time. Can you talk to you know, Hisham, talk to Hisham? Ultimately, that didn't happen. Um, but, you know, the instruction was very clearly given to do it. And, you know, if you'd worked on the knee-jerk reactions of Hisham, that, that would have happened and, and would have seriously damaged the club. Um, and it was just... Yeah, and again, it, it, that's down to the fact that they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have relevant experience. You know, they were not patient, um, and and they were becoming increasingly desperate in in, in terms of getting someone in, um, and very short term kind of look on on the club. You know, someone loses at one point, you don't fire them the next day. You know, you've got to have a more of a medium to long term view, and they just didn't have that. Um, and that was that. I mean, that day for me was absolute hell. Um, you know, I remember it really, really, really well. Um, and, you know, they'd also tried to call Brian as well several times because, you know, after the match when I was talking to Brian, you know, I even, I think from memory, I even went during half time or I messaged him saying, don't answer your phone. Um, it was either, yeah, I think it was half time or afterwards. I told him not to answer his phone from Bahrain and he didn't. Um, but I was worried that they were going to contact him direct and they had, you know, they tried to contact him direct and probably fire him direct, you know, straight away. It was that kind of, I mean, just, just complete and utter madness. And that brings an end to section one of episode 16. Join us next week for section two, where David speaks about his 22 months in a Dubai prison, his opinions on the Football League's owners and directors test, and if he felt he had any responsibility for the demise of Leeds United during that time. Thanks for listening.